Okay, and we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. My name is Mike Winner, and I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando up here on the Smith River in the great state of Jefferson. It is 2021, and this is the really the first official podcast of the new season. And today's topic is something really close to our hearts, uh, agrarianism and the importance of it now more than ever. We're going to dive deep into it uh, as uh, we... <laughs> We are in uncharted, crazy times, huh, Bear? Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what can you say? everything's a show out in Babylon. So um, this is uh, going to be a fun one to talk about because this is really grounding and something that um, really is uh, an answer to a lot of the world's problems. Um, and a reason why I moved my family out of Los Angeles and... Uh, just something that, yeah, it's going to be a fun shot. So let's just jump into it. Uh, this week's AlphaCast kicks off the uh, 2021 podcast year with the first in an A to Z series on farming and gardening. We'll focus on two articles co-authored by Deborah and Dr. Berlando, both certified master gardener permaculturists and overseers of our own Alphavedic Gardens permaculture farm. Did you know that agrarianism is both a philosophical and social philosophy that has been the foundation of all great and enduring civilizations? On this episode, we'll make a strong case that it's time to return to our roots and how agrarianism is the best possible method to restore our freedoms and personal health. We already have had many spectacular guests lined up for the new AlphaCast season, but we've also heard your many requests to have more in-house episodes as we have much to share, and we've had many, many requests on the specific topic of gardening, farming, growing, permaculture, soil science, which we'll delve more and more into this year with special guests and with Dr. Lando. Today, we felt like really to start with the foundation of the philosophy and why it's so important um, to really uh, understand that energetically and in um, from the higher realms and why this is something that can really, it's not something just the past, right? This is something that is really uh, agrarianism is something that is, is foundational for life in humanity on this realm forever. Um, Dr. Lando, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great, Mike, and uh, glad you got out and got a little powdery yesterday. You know, I, I hear you went snowboarding there, so uh, good for you. I'm kind of jealous because I was home uh, moving boulders and working on the farm here, but I'll get out there with you soon. You know, we um, originally were, for today, as you know, we we're going to talk about the trivium quadrivium, which is a classical system of logic, and I think... Uh, it would have been great and very timely because uh, of the lack of um, rational thinking out there, we'll say these days. Um, and of course, we're going to do it a little bit differently, not just sort of a dry rehash of what a lot of people already understand about trivium, quadrivium, but we're going to use it within the context of how a, a doctor or a physician or a health practitioner of any type could use logic when they're treating people going through, you know, the diagnostic procedures and also, uh, you know, determining what a, a, a good, you know, treatment rationale would be. And uh, so, you know, we want to make it more of a live model and like, this is how you use it in real time and how everybody 
no matter what your profession or vocation, you know, you should be using this. So um, we'll save that for another time because uh, as I was preparing that yesterday, uh, my wife walked in with a couple old articles that we had written and um, started reading one to me. And I, I was listening. I thought, well, that's pretty good, you know. And, uh, you know, as you know, we write gardening columns for different papers and publications and, and they get out there a little bit. They're well received. And so the, the one that I decided to um, use today was one that's like a history of our country. And there's a second article that if we have time, you know, we'll just kind of highlight that a little bit. And uh, because that talks about all the health benefits and uh, we'll call psycho-spiritual benefits uh, of gardening. So that might be kind of fun. And uh, both of these uh, I put in a um, PowerPoint uh, uh, format and I can make that into a PDF and then we'll put the, the copies into the uh, maybe into the Patreon group for the Patreons because we won't have time to read both articles, you know, fully today. So we'll leave that there for them. We'll kind of highlight some things. Uh, I might do some share screens here. Uh, and, you know, what we really don't understand is that, um, you know, agrarianism isn't just about farming. It's the basis of an entire country. And there was a time where, you know, all the great civilizations, you know, that were based on agrarian concepts, uh, you know, the people in those cultures understood that and they were only able to reach uh, enduring and, uh, you know, uh, uh, great heights when they had that kind of foundation. Of course, that's what we're doing here in Alpha Vedic is we're creating a little prototype because we understand it's not good enough to just, uh, you know, watch TV and, uh, argue about who won elections and things when that really has nothing to do with anything in our lives. And uh, it's really time for all of us to return to the soil, do uh, non-centralized small farms in every location. That's the way we take our power back. And a lot of people now are saying, well, the country's gone and there's part of me that uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, dismayed with what I see right now. And they're saying, well, what do we do? And of course, that gets into all sorts of topics like, well, do we change our status? Do we reform our state assemblies? And, you know, that's all good stuff. And, uh, you know, I'd say we're probably going to need to go there the way things are going. But first, we have to have a foundation. We have to be grounded. And that means going back to the principles of agrarianism. And I am uh, going to put my voice in right now for a new third party next time around, which is the agrarian party. And oh, wow. uh, I think it would not just be a great concept, but it would uh, really alert people to what's needed at this time. So uh, what I'd like to do maybe is just read um, the first article. And it's a couple pages. So if people can bear with it for about 10 minutes, I think it's worth it because it really gets into the history of our country and the founding fathers uh, understanding and belief that, you know, you cannot have a culture, let alone a society of any type, unless it's agrarian based. So um, there is another book that we got, uh, my wife and myself got a lot of this information from 
uh, a woman in Great Britain, by the way. And forgive me, um, we were looking for the book yesterday. We'll find it. We'll put it up in our notes to give her, her full credit. But she did amazing research on the foundations of our country, the history of our country. And it's interesting that, uh, that one of our uh, British uh, um, brethren out there had to do it for us. So that's where we got a lot of our information. So here we go. Do you, um, do you need me to make you host so you can sh do a screen share? Yeah, well, wh what do you think, Mike? Should I just, uh, you know, read it or would it help if people are seeing the words? Because I can just read and then not interrupt the flow at all. It's up to you. That's fine. Whatever you think. I mean, I would only okay. screen share if there was like something to show graphically or image wise. No, it's just words. So, uh, okay. so listen up, folks. Okay, of course. Uh, and, you know, for those out there who, um, you know, in our in our community, there's a lot of people questioning history, and questioning even the idea of that um, uh, that uh, you know the four the 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 whole history of the United States and going back pre 1800s. I really love the Tartaria stuff. I love the impossible architecture uh, kind of investigation going on. But let's be clear here. You know, there is a fundamental concurrence of, of historical uh, narrative that goes across so many different levels here that relate back to the forefathers, uh, the, the founding fathers, from the mystery schools to the Ascended Masters teachings to like core primary documents to say that this stuff is nonsense and to just say now, oh, well, the, there was a great reset in the 1800s and now why even talk about this? That is, first of all, nobody in the uh, impossible architecture scene in the Tartaria scene has, has any theory to explain how this all worked. Now, I agree. I agree that there's something going on there with the World's Fairs and with all that. And those that are listening that have been following this get what I'm saying. There's something there. And I, 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 I those guys are my brothers that and sisters that have been investigating this. But to discount the history of the United States, the Republic and everything, that cynicism that just to jump into these deep conspiracies is not going to help us. So, you know, for me personally, because my family goes back to the Hales, which is Nathan Hale, who is a great patriot who actually um, went against his own brother for the Republic uh, and was a spy. And, you know, I regret that I have one life to give for my country. He's uh, from my dad's side, who uh, my grandma side were the Hales. And we actually track that back there in our family line. So, and in, nowhere in that family line does anybody say there was a, a mud flood. <laughs> so I get it. I get there's weird stuff that goes on. This could go into a lot of trippy conversations I want to have this year. My only point of bringing this up there is that I just know from our community, there'll be people who will discount this right off the bat because of these, you know, theories and these new, or this new information that's come up about Tartaria and the mud flood the last few years. And we can't let that get in the way of understanding these philosophies um, and the, and the power um, of the story and the narrative we get from people like Thomas Jefferson, people we get from the founding fathers. So I just wanted to interject that in before you go in there, because I feel like that's, I had to say that it's been really bugging me for a while because I love the Tartaria uh, stuff. I love diving into that. But until we get a better theory and understanding of what that is and how that happened and, and how those buildings were made, um, it's important that we 
that we stick to facts and we stick to historical concrete knowledge that is um, evidentiary through multiple different avenues. And you're, you're muted right now, Bear. <clears throat> there you go. It's not about Tartaria only. It's about all subject matter that's been gaslighted and suppressed forever. And, um, you know, Tartaria, I've done a lot of investigation too, and there's definitely some, you know, real stuff there. And, uh, you know, like our last week's podcast, uh, that was just kind of a recap. That was actually well received, by the way. We had quite a few people on there. Um, you know, we talked it uh, talked about 2021 being uh, the great unmasking, the year of the unmasking. So, you know, it, it's kind of a cute little thing to say because it kind of, in one sense, means f you to everybody that tries to make you wear a mask and cover up. But also. Um, it's about unmasking the truth on every single level. And it was foretold uh, that in this time, in the end times, and we always talk about end times, meaning the end of time and Armageddon actually means beginning. So, you know, a little bit of a different twist in the book religions that are used to control us as well um, and twisted the words of the Nazarene and, and you know, and all the great prophets. But uh, this time was uh, to be the, the time where no secrets would be allowed to exist. And look what happened in this last week. You know, a lot of people are wringing their hands about what's going on in our country, but really sit back. And if you can kind of get uh, emotionally uh, detached, a lot of truth has come out. A lot of truth has been coming out for several years now, but really culminating in this last week. And now we know who the players are. We know who all the players are. And I, I'm still kind of hoping that there's a strategy behind the scenes to let this uh, colossal crime play out so that, and, and to completion, so that all the bad actors would reveal themselves. And they, you know, whether that's true or not, all the bad actors have revealed themselves. We know who everybody is. We know what side everybody is on. And, um, you know, so we're going to be revealing the truth, not just our opinions, but based on, you know, a lot of the research that we do. And we travel on some pretty heady circles, you know, with some mm -hmm. folks that are high up in military intelligence and, you know, in all sorts of circles where they have some inside scoops. And, uh, you know, so that's going to be our source, not just repeating what other people are saying on YouTube. So with that being said, um, <laughs> folks, forgive me for just reading here. Uh, we'll go back into discussion mode as quick as possible. But here's just a little historical overview. This is an article that uh, my wife and myself wrote. Uh, we titled it The Roots of Freedom. And uh, we actually wrote this for Fourth of July uh, a year or so ago. And um, so here we go. And uh, it begins, uh, the 4th of July has become a holiday built upon caricatures from a time remote with little relevance in today's world. Why did the founding fathers risk everything to create a new nation? From what wellspring did they find the resolve to face the hardships that would surely follow their audacious claim of sovereignty? We're taught of their passion for freedom, but what did freedom really mean to the early colonists. The colonists were an agrarian affair. The colonies were an agrarian affair. This we know for certain. It would surprise many, however, to realize how their affinity to the land became the driving force in birthing a new country. Farming and horticulture were counted as the most noble of pursuits. 
and one's right to till a single portion of the Earth's surface was emblematic of freedom itself. The decision to formally notice the crown through the Declaration of Independence was not founded on a capricious notion. Regulations, taxes, permit fees, coercion to purchase, uh, purchase British goods, and mandatory crop provisioning to Great Britain all contributed to the inevitable critical mass that precedes all times of great change. Gone were the emotional ties to Mother England as new generations of colonists fully imprinted in the new world. The acknowledgement of a single creator as the universal authority left little room for earthly allegiances blasphemous to matters of spirit, while the heavy handedness of the redcoats would tip the final scales. So, Michael, do you see any parallels in uh, what's going on today and then? Oh, just a few. <laughs> the Redcoats are back, folks. Uh, where's Paul Revere? Well, there's a lot of Paul Revere's, actually, and we're doing it ourselves. Okay, so self-determination. So how did gardening and agricultural agriculture become the single most influential element of a mindset that would eventually demand America's right for self-determination? eventually demand America's right for self-determination. The lives of five prominent founding fathers offers a most insightful time capsule, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Madison, and Benjamin Franklin all recognized that America's independence, financial and otherwise, was tenuous and less rooted in the soil itself. For Franklin, self-reliance was consequential to managing the land's natural resources as a means of sustenance and foundational to an equitable financial system. All five men were avid plantsmen and their personal estates became the focus for crop experimentation, seed exchanges with neighboring farmers and the primary source of medicine. Pretty cool. Very cool. The colonists themselves came to equate bountiful yields and their stewardship of the land as the political act most necessary toward the realization of independence for a fledgling nation. Every farmstead became an integral cog in a collective resilience capable of boycotting British goods while preparing to fight. So Michael, it kind of sounds like uh, what we're preaching all the time with our little project up here, pretty neat. Very cool. I mean, there's so much to unpack right here, right? The fact that yep. really the core and, and those are became many presidents right there um, were farmers and not only just farmers, but they were tinkerers there. We know they were inventors. They were they were the true de definition of a renaissance man, which is something that I like to Absolutely. think that you and I really engage in, um, you know, having a, a, a compassion about nature, but also a passion about uh, creativity, investigation, and and in you know going into all sorts of different realms of thought and 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 um, hobbies. But you know, I want to read something real quick, just to, uh, a basic defini yeah, defi definition of agrarianism, because and this is from Britannica.com. But I think it this is. I remember like studying this a little bit in philosophy, uh, one of my philosophy classes at, at university. Uh, but this really hit home for me when I read this uh, this week. Agrarianism, 
in social and political philosophy, perspective that stresses the primacy of family farming, widespread property ownership, and political decentralization. Agrarian ideas are typically justified in terms of how they serve to cultivate moral character and to develop a full and responsible person. Many proponents of agrarianism revere nature, whether understood as natural phenomena or as God's creation. See that it can go either way. I mean, this really encompasses everybody here. This is the whole AV fam right here. Respect, tradi um, respect tradition and experience, distrust ideology, and regard science and technology with skepticism. Now, we say a healthy skepticism is good, right? That's not a negative thing. That is the scientific method, really. Uh, proponents of agrarianism believe that when individuals attach themselves to farming and a rural way of life, the required labor enhances their existence. Family and locale are rooted, allowing stable associations to develop that enable people to experience in non-acquisitive way, in a non-acquisitive way, the goods of a grounded community, including leisure, friendship, love, art, and religion, or I'll put there too, spirituality. Right there. I mean, that is alpha Vedic to a key, man. I know. it's, And uh, for sure, bring on the agrarian party. So who are our first candidates for the agrarian party? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the question there too is the party system grounded in the corporatization. And that's another thing too, that the agrarians, um, the agrarianism um, philosophy really counters is the corporation because they see the corporation or we see the corporation as an aspect of the greater state, um, the greater centralization. So is having a party, I, I guess what you're kind of getting at there is outside of the corporate sphere or whether it's inside the corporate sphere of the United States Inc. It's still like a marketing thing, right? It's a, it's an awareness thing to develop awareness around the topic, kind of like these other third parties. Yeah. And I was just talking in a political sense, the agrarian party, of course, would represent a true philosophy that the an entire nation could hang on to, you know, build a strong nation and people and also a nation that would support people on every level, including the soul's purpose for incarnating on this plane in the first place. Uh, oh, yeah. I hear your phone ringing. Yeah. And by the way, uh, everyone, um, yes, uh, we've been fully inundated with calls Oh, uh, Dr. Lando is, um, and something going on with zoom right now. Uh, forgive me here. I don't know what happened here, but, um, uh, we, I just bring this up cause the phone's ringing. I'm sorry if we're not getting to everyone's emails and calls and everything. We have been completely swamped with and inundated with requests from farming, gardening, health, people with cancer, people with illness. It's just six of us. And it's it, so just letting everybody know, we will get to you. Join the co-op if you can. We've got our executive co-op meeting next Monday. You know, we're trying our best. It's it's over. We're overwhelmed right now. So yeah. <laughs> anyways, and um, sorry for that. 
yeah, but we're working on it and, uh, you know, we're accomplishing a tremendous amount. So if people understand it's not just us over here on overwhelm, we're actually doing and accomplishing a lot. And for, you know, the many people that, you know, are brought to my attention that have health issues, you know, my heart goes out to you because that's my vocation. And that's why I got into the business in the first place is to help people. Uh, I did retire my clinic some years ago, along with the staff and all the facilities, the technologies, uh, you know, there's limited things that I can do maybe on a consulting base these days. But one of the things we'll be doing on the property is not creating a new clinic uh, so much to bring people in for treatment, but to train practitioners to do uh, a lot of the lost arts that I was fortunate enough to learn. And also my own system that I devised it as a synthesis of many things that, uh, you know, I've had a lot of requests for uh, doctor types to learn. So, you know, we'll be providing that. And, and I think that's the way we can reach most people. So uh, for sure, if you're somebody that's tried to reach out, number one, you know, you kind of go through several channels before it even ends up on my desk, uh, you know, a while later. And uh, we try to get back to some of them, some of them, we again, just don't have time. So folks, thanks for your patience. Um, so let's continue on with this uh, Fine, fine article. Who wrote? Oh, that's right. We wrote that. Um, I'm kind of liking this. You know, sometimes you don't read what you wrote for a while. And so anyway, I feel like I'm reading someone else's words here. So uh, now we're going into the section of the uh, uh, article uh, about the revolution. Okay. The unimaginable rigors of the Revolutionary War demanded the constant admonition of General Washington to his troops that they were free men fighting for the blessings of liberty. Amidst the grim outlook for the American troops and the crisis facing our commander in chief, he always found time for communications with his cousin Lund Washington, the estate manager of his beloved home, Mount Vernon. Washington found moments of solace designing ornamental groves of North American native trees, white pine, red cedars, poplars, uh, alabaster dogwood. After all, Mount Vernon was to be an American garden. While his love of trees and keen interest in agrarian design offered personal respite from the darkness of war, the general's farming instincts extended to the war effort itself. Washington mandated the planting of regimental gardens, thus providing vegetables for army rations and a source of comfort and encouragement to his battle-weary soldiers. Eight arduous years later, George Washington returned home. His vision of a nationhood built by farmers rather than military conquest was a brief time realized. America would be an agrarian society whereby our sword and spears have given place to the plowshare and pruning hook. He dreamed of a simple and fulfilling life as a farmer. Wow. Okay, so to continue, a new nation. Post-revolutionary war brought different circumstances and new challenges to a country yet in its pre-adolescence. The bitter British aristocracy would organize a general European boycott of American goods in retaliation to a young upstart daring to compete against the protected commercial interest of the crown. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson Avid gardeners both were called upon to counter these measures by establishing the international alliances most favorable for America's economic dependence. While traveling Europe, Adams and Jefferson took an equal interest to the gardens. 
design and farming techniques of old Europe. Their reconnaissance mission included tours of the publicly celebrated estates of England to firsthand glean the numerous styles and agricultural elements of working farms. Back home in the New World, James Madison emerged as the first American environmentalist as he witnessed the ruthless desecration of forest and soil in his native Virginia. He warned his countrymen that the ability of the United States to thrive was proportionate to the health of its environment. True to the founding father's inclination to merge philosophy and pragmatism, he believed man should conform his affairs within the symmetry of nature. Is that way cool or not? Yes. I mean, how many people really understand the mindset of these, you know, what we call our founding fathers? They were grounded in and, universal uh, law. I'm just so, so far beyond... Um, you know, who do we have today in Washington? I mean, yeah, I don't get scoundrels and actors. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll just continue and not too much longer. And, and Mike interject with any conversation. Anytime. Oh, this is amazing. Keep going. Very well written. Okay. So uh, thank you. Mass plantings of sugar maples, fruit trees, and other crops became the weaponry of choice to secure the independence of the new republic. While America realized its destiny as an aggregate of independent small farmers, newly emancipated from the devious institutions of centralized banking, American nationals shunned wealth acquired by financial speculation as a crude form of gambling that could only bring ruin and destruction. In sharp contrast, horticulture was considered a science to enrich lives by providing food, medicine, financial stability and aesthetics. Early colonists viewed one's connection to the earth akin to the acknowledgement of a creator and the source of the vast abundance available to mankind. It should come as no surprise that the current resurgence in gardening coincides with similar historical circumstances as those faced by our founding fathers. Whether your interest in gardening is the pursuit of a contemplative pastime or a means to provide food and medicine, it is the single most powerful act in living a self-determined life. And I'll finish off with just a little quote on this one article uh, by Thomas Jefferson. Cultivators of the earth are the most valuable citizens. They are the most vigorous, the most independent, the most virtuous, and they are tied to their country and are wedded to its interest by liberty and the most lasting bonds. Thomas Jefferson. Mm. So I believe that completes that article. Yeah. Uh, there's one more that we can uh, talk about later that gets more into the health attributes of agrarianism. And this was another article that we co-authored co uh, that we just titled The Fountain of Youth. So Michael, uh, Wow, it's wow. just so uncanny what's going on right now and reading those words, um, incredible. Well, and by sense. the way, you know, I really enjoy writing and uh, we want to get more written blogs. I stopped doing it uh, a year or so ago just because I came to the conclusion that nobody reads it anymore. So I was just writing for myself, but I'd like to start up again. So if we can get any feedback uh, from folks to, you know, let us know if they would enjoy reading things, uh, you know, in addition to our other electronic communication. So sorry, Mike, go ahead. 
No, I think that's fantastic. And I would love to uh, have more of those articles on Patreon for our co-op. I think, um, you know, I really enjoy reading when you guys were putting those out. And those were put out actually in local newspapers and some other publications. Those, those were actually published. And um, they're fantastic because it's inspiring. It's inspiring to read the written word. You know, uh, last night after uh, hitting the slopes, I, I was reading my boy's uh, bedtime story. I'm currently reading the Brian Jacques uh, fantasy series, Redwall, Mossflower, if anybody knows those. And uh, I read those as a kid. And, you know, my kids will love to go read Captain Underpants and stuff, which is fine. They read that themselves. And this is the, <laughs> this is what modernity gives them right now, gives them this pulp kind of really nonsense stuff, which is witty and kind of funny and whatnot. But we're reading Brian Jacques last night, uh, Jacques, Jacques, sorry if I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly, um, which I read as a kid. And it's like 14 of those books. And it's just like cool kid fantasy, but it's written in a way where it's like Shakespearean to them because it's, it, it actually is proper grammar and like, and, and an extension extension of their vocabulary. And I, it's important. I was talking to my wife about this last night, like our kids read like my kid, my older kid is nine. He goes up and just reads and, and our younger, he's more of an outdoorsman, but we are pushing that on them too. It's like, and kids, a lot of kids don't read anymore. They're in fact, we've talked about this in other alpha casts in school. They're not reading They're They're getting videos read to them or there are videos of people talking to them for comp reading, reading comprehension. So, so important. And let's, um, let's get more of these done bear. Cause you're really good at it. I used to write papers in college for people. I enjoy it. I enjoy editing and stuff. So, uh, I think that would be great and uh, something we could add uh, more value to the co-op. So um, interesting, Thomas Jefferson, going back to him, he, uh, one of my favorite characters in history. I know he gets a lot of uh, attention from neo-libs and uh, postmodern critics for being a slaveholder. Uh, and that's a whole other can of worms to get into, which we've discussed in the past. However, um, what he really stood for was uh, was universal law, right? Rationalism, um, morality in terms of um, the greater scope of, of, um, of divinity and, um, and being tied to your, um, your connection with nature. Uh, and he says here, he maintained that farming rather than urban manufacture would more likely ensure the independence and strength of character necessary for the free citizens of a decentralized republic. And remember, the forefathers understood the power of having checks and balances and a decentralized republic where you don't have a corporation or a, a plutocracy develop, which we have now. Um, and in order for that, you need a citizenry that is self-reliant, that is educated, that has um, a foundation of moral character. And of course, with the um, commercialization and industrialization from the late 1800s through the 20th century, we see the opposite of that with urbanity, with modernity. We see a social welfare system. We see um, neoliberalism, which is grounded to corporatization or corporatism. 
Uh, and we know that this is all related to centraliz centralizing, centralizing power, which we're seeing. So agrarianism is the counter to globalism. And um, we've talked in the past the danger of mono agriculture. And we've seen that with, um, with what's happened in the last 10 years with um, the destruction of uh, the small farm. And with what the USDA has done, the FDA, like the USDA has been complicit with destruction of millions and millions of pounds of food uh, because of monocultures and where the, where the market goes, where like they'll have, they'll produce too many cranberries, for instance. I think 2018, they produced too many cranberries uh, that drove the price down, where it was actually uh, going to pay less than the cost to grow. So they destroyed a third of the cranberry crop, millions and millions of pounds of food. Um, it's nonsense. So uh, decentralization, you know, is something I'm very, very um, adamant about. I feel like it is the number one solution to the world's problems and getting to decentralizing our food through community uh, sharecropping, community uh, gardening, uh, and then family gardening. I think every family should be gardening. Very simple. Uh, and uh, figuring out so you don't have the monoculture issues with too much of one product being grown. It's like, okay, well, we've got yams and peas and beans covered. What are you guys growing? You guys have a better little microclimate where you're at to do, um, you know, fruit trees and, um, you know, vines and whatever, or taking the whole permaculture aspect and, and, integrating a lot into one very dense place, like with the food forest idea, right? We can get a lot of food production in a very small area. All of this is empowering. So this is all stuff we'll be really diving into a lot this year. And it's uh, something we do, we do every day. Yeah, and you did an amazing job. I know, you know, Deb and I oversee the farm here. <clears throat> so we kind of live you know, in the off-grid situation and have a little bit of a bigger operation. But, you know, you in your acres over at your place, you've done a phenomenal job just creating your food forest. And, you know, I remember looking at that house when we were searching for this property here, you know, years back. And uh, we actually looked at that and contemplated buying it. And from the time that, you know, we first saw it, from now going over to your place and looking what you've done, it's like night and day, totally different. It's like a little mini farm. And, and it's just a, a, an amazing example of um, how anybody can provide for themselves. You know, the great um, thing about what we're talking about is you cut out all the middlemen, all the fluff. Because if you look at the whole food chain, by the time, you know, things get to your table, the amount of people in that, uh, you know, that flow are all middlemen. And, you know, only at the very beginning is there actually somebody that had their, you know, hands in the dirt and was, you know, working and growing something. But then even the farmer himself is, uh, you know, controlled by the dictates of the marketplace, uh, price fixing, uh, governments uh, ordering, you know, destruction of crops or, or demanding that you don't plant or just farmers saying, look, uh, you know, I'm going to lose money if I plant crops. So I'm not planting this year. And, you know, we'll be talking more about the coming food shortage. They're not coming. They're already here. They just haven't quite caught up with the average person yet, but they will this year, uh, most assuredly. And I would say so, the food you know, quality shortage too. I oh, think- geez. I think they'll be able to keep 
the uh, the food on in the Walmarts, but it's just going to get more and more depleted of nutrients. It already is. Like even we talk about how organic food in most grocery stores is deplete of most minerals and it's it's highly deficient. So when you go to the, the new, it's funny, it's crazy. Like the new Walmart is Whole Foods. Like people think they are so elevated by going to an Amazon owned Whole Foods, but most of that organic produce is monocropped. And it is, you know, negligent in terms of, of health um, benefits. So uh, not to cut you off there, but I think in order to keep the Ponzi going, they're going to keep the shelves, it, do everything in their power to keep the shelves full, but it's going to get worse. It's like what we've seen. I was talking with my wife yesterday because we were coming back from skiing and my kids like in and out. So we went to in and out. I was going to go to this other local little deli and it was closed. Um, so I was talking about how, when I was a kid growing up in SoCal, how I did, I liked McDonald's, even though my parents rarely let me go to McDonald's, but I liked it because I feel like McDonald's even back then when I was in the eighties was, was way better than it is now. We've seen even in the fast food realm, like growing, I'm sure McDonald's in like the sixties when it started was actually probably kind of legit. I don't know, uh, you know, and they through the markets, through the corporatization and globalization, I think every month, every year, they're slimming it down. They're like figuring out shortcuts, right? And ways to take the real food out and cut corners. And so now where we're at, where it's just all like soy by byproducts and probably insects and who knows what's in this food. It's all fillers and chemicals to the point where fast food is, we, we talk about this all the time. It's just straight poison. Where when I was a kid, I would go to McDonald's every now and then. You know, and now I don't allow my kids to eat that stuff. And we'll, I think even in and out, it's probably way worse than it used to be back then. And so anyways, um, my point is, I feel like they're going to do their best to keep the, and we will see the shelves thinning out, but I, I think they'll keep their bet, do their best to keep the food. So we don't have mass food riots in the, at least in the United States, but it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So you got to grow your own food. And it's a little bit disturbing when you find out that, uh, you know, studies reveal the presence of human DNA in a lot of the meat products. Um, <laughs> maybe that's just somebody blowing their nose on the assembly line or something, but it seems to be <laughs> pretty universal with people that investigate on that level. So, uh, yeah, um, wow. But anyway, um, yeah, I grew up in a time where, and in a community where we didn't have fast foods. I can proudly say I've never been to a McDonald's in my entire life also. Wow. And, but, you know, back to farming, um, think of how much less expensive food would be if you bought it from a local farmer, uh, you know, from uh, farm to table, you know, which is, you know, one of the new little trendy things out there with certain restaurants. Well, every community should be farm to table. Now, uh, food is, uh, you know, pretty hefty part of everybody's budget these days. And uh, right there, you know, think of the savings, not just uh, financially, but in your health and, uh, you know, paying for health care down the line when you're eating real inundated or, or, you know, nutritious food. And like you said, Michael, um, you know, organic food these days is devoid of nutrition. At best, uh, organic food bought in one of these supermarkets is got maybe 30 percent 
of the minerals and other nutrients that should be there in the first place. And if a food, even if it's organically grown, and I'm not a big fan of organically certifying things because it's just a big political scam now. Mm-hmm. And of course, another way to raise revenue, you know, we do everything on the farm here biodynamically, but I'm not going to go in this organic certification. There's no way I'm jumping through hoops um, and, 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 you know, conforming practices in order to get a certification when in fact, a lot of the hoops I have to go through are going to decrease the quality of the food we're now growing by biodynamically because we're just trying to conform to somebody's standards in order to get a piece of paper and pay somebody money to get that. So folks, uh, forget about organic certification. It's really meaningless. Uh, the things that we don't grow ourselves here that, you know, go into some of our products where we have to get, you know, uh, other ingredients and, and we're working quickly to you know, grow as much of our ingredients as possible. But the things we do get elsewhere, I get a personal relationship with the suppliers. It's not about, oh, is this organically certified? I want to know on the ground, what are you guys doing? And in some cases, we end up buying the non-organic ingredients because they're much higher quality. We're not saying that all organic food is bad, but it's not at all what you think it is. And the chain stores now that have monopolized that industry have not only practiced, uh, you know, predator corporatism by putting all the, the really cool mom and pop health food stores that started sprouting up in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, not only are they all put out of business, but in exchange, we've got a, a decrease in uh, the quality of our food. And that might be a good segue into uh, article two, which I won't read the whole thing. We'll save this for our patrons here, but I'll just uh, maybe read the first page, just kind of set the stage of what this article is about. And then we can uh, maybe list some of the health attributes uh, that this article talks about related to gardening. Yeah. Cause I was just, okay. I was just going to yeah, go uh, mention um, the important thing too, of eating seasonally. And um, how uh, I wanted to relate this to health because when you're eating seasonally, when you're growing your own food, in the chat right now, we're talking about winter growing. And I've really put a lot of effort into growing food during the winter, um, converting um, raised beds into low tunnels, for instance, with uh, certain frames I've created, just just figuring out stuff, right? And using really high grade um, uh, greenhouse coverings and stuff like that for the wind and rain. And it's working, I'm being able to grow. I, I kind of got a little behind this year because we integrated chickens into uh, the home, uh, our little uh, homestead here. And um, I, we don't really have a homestead. We have, it's like a suburban homestead, even though we're not in suburbia, we live up in the mountains, but we, we're on grid and anyways. Um, and they got, they kind of ruined a lot of my raised beds and I've learned that we've got a, a chicken palace now where they're in and they're comfortable and all that. But so anyways, but the ability to grow food in the winter is something that I think, um, our forefathers and people totally understood. It's just like knowing what the winter crops are and then, and, and eating seasonally, like whether that be turnip, your root vegetables, right? Your turnips, your carrots, your, your hearty winter greens. Um, and then with using permaculture and using advanced, like newer ideas of, of crop of bringing in companions that work together well and keep each other healthy and, 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 um, uh, you know, doing no dig and all these, there is innovation happening too. It's not like 
we can't innovate, right? So anyways, um, but the ability to eat seasonally to your health, I wanted to ask you, maybe this we could talk about after you read this article. I think our bodies, because of thousands of years of eating seasonally and not being in a globally, you know, a globalized food system where we're eating oranges in December, or eating tomatoes in December, shipped up here from Mexico or wherever, depending on where, where we're from. And, you know, I think eating seasonally actually is probably better for your health. So sticking to the seasonal um, uh, vegetables and fruits or whatever, according to where you live, your body is wants that. It hungers for that. So that's just a theory I have. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe because some of humanity has always lived in subtropical places. Maybe that's not correct. But that was just a theory that I had I'd come up with recently about our health. Yeah, I think it's beyond a theory because um, my experience, the healthier you get, the cleaner your machinery is running. You crave what's growing seasonally. You know, you just your tastes change with the seasons. And, uh, you know, that's uh, a lot of people say that they, yeah, they just don't crave the same thing in the summertime as they do in the wintertime. And of course, uh, there's great value to understand, not just nutritionally speaking, but understanding the energetics of foods. And in the practice of Chinese medicine, which I've done for a long time, you know, you're always, it's about balancing the energy in your body. It's about achieving harmony within all the organ and meridian systems. And if you're going through like the winter months as we are now and it's cold and damp, then you know you need those foods that are gonna and uh, lend more of a warming, um, you know, drying quality perhaps in order to balance out the next natural energetics that your body, you know, is exposed to. And the meridian system of the body, uh, what people have to understand, sure, it traverses through uh, all the organ systems and things. But what the meridian system really is, it's a homeostatic mechanism that appraises the human body all the time of what's going on in the external environment. And it's a constant exchange of energetics and information. And that's what the meridians are for. Uh, just a little segue into something else. Uh, sorry for another tangent. But, um, you know, within other fields now, uh, there's been identified beyond what even the acupuncturist understood back then, uh, unique internal energy flows and qualities within every organ. And now we can work on an organ by organ situation more for inter internal homeostasis. And then when that's coupled with a good balance of the meridian system that interacts with the external environment, then you've got the perfect, uh, you know, just, just a perfect communication between all parts of yourself and everything outside of yourself, even though it's really not outside of yourself. It's a, it's a seamless web of informational fields based on waveform transmission and, you know, all the stuff that we always talk about. So, uh, Let's go, maybe let me just read the first couple paragraphs here, and then we can list a few of the health benefits of gardening. And uh, I'll spare you reading the whole thing, but let's just see. I haven't read this in ages, so let's see what we talked about here. The Fountain of Youth. Every avid gardener has that aha moment when it occurs that there's more to tilling the soil than meets the eye. Early on, I attended a class in garden design taught by a horticultural professor with a prior incarnation in the development of weapons of mass destruction. This guy actually, you know, was in the, the weapon business. So um, operating 
uh, let me, uh, in the development of weapons of mass destruction operating from beyond the limits of the Earth's atmosphere. So that's what this guy did, this professor, but he's now teaching guard design. The irony of his conflicting vocations was not lost as he was now dedicated to giving and growing new life. One thing he said in particular that struck me in, in the many years since is that gardening increases a lifespan more than 20 years. To date, extensive research has continued to corroborate his astonishing statement. Studies have yielded a variance in findings and numbers, but the overwhelming conclusion is consistent. Gardening is beneficial to the human body. This understanding has now been formalized within a discipline known as horticultural therapy. And uh, Michael, I know you're aware, but for the benefit of our audience, uh, we've been talking about one of the primary programs we wanna launch in the next phase of our farm operations here is classes in horticultural therapy. And, um, and of course, an extra benefit for us is that we'll get some people weeding our gardens for us. <laughs> but um, but, but it's, uh, you know, we're out there every day, you know, doing this stuff ourselves, And at the end of every day, we, we're, we're never tired of doing it. You know, it's hard work, but um, that is one of the things we want to do here on the farm. Go ahead. You want to say something? I was just going to say, heal yourself. Come dig some trenches. <laughs> yeah. Pull those weeds. Um, okay. So where were we here? So history. People have always found peace and solace in nature. Mankind's first recorded use of horticulture as a treatment for the mentally disturbed goes back to ancient Egypt. Court physicians discerned the calming and healing effects of gardening on the human psyche. This recognition was retained and further implemented within clinical settings in countries such as the United States, England, and Spain during the 1700s and 1800s. The people-plant connection was well accepted as an effective approach in the treatment for disease. Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and a professor at the Institute of Medicine and Clinical Practice in Philadelphia, also considered America's first psychiatrist, opened the door for horticulture in the treatment of mental illness. He duly noted and substantiated the curative effect that field labor in a farm setting had on people suffering from mental illness and those combating what is commonly known today as post-trauma stress disorder as a consequence of the Revolutionary War. Today, horticultural therapy is practiced worldwide in institutional settings from hospitals to prisons as gardening programs assist in the rehabilitation of both mental and physical disability. How might you benefit from putting your hands in the soil? So then we just go and start listing some things. Any comments so far, Mike? Well, um, I would say one of the big comments is that, um, you know, as far as health benefits, of course, you have the grounding aspect where you're, we talk, I, I end every alpha cast with this, go outside, get your hands in the dirt. So we know we, in the technological era we live in now with the dirty electricity and the EMFs and everything, we're supercharged, right? With all this positive, uh, um, positive ions and everything and to, to ground in the earth is important. But I would say beyond that, is the information we pass 
the holistic, more holistic mindset of with the plant life, with the microzyma, or excuse me, with the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the fungi and the, and the bacteria, and that we're literally, um, engaging with, uh, there, um, I feel like there's this, there's a, there's a kind of informational pass through that you have with just the intention of even growing something, uh, is good for us. So I think, we, we need to even get beyond just that. Oh, it's the grounding aspect. There's something much bigger involved with, with going out and in, in practicing horticulture, whether that be, um, you know, putting the seeds in your mouth, um, before you plant them to, uh, even just the act of planning out your garden. Um, I mean, there's so many aspects to it beyond just the physical. We try to always with Alpha Vedic get beyond that, right? So I want to explore more of this uh, this year on all these health benefits of gardening, of, of planting trees. Another thing that was interesting, I remember David Avocado Wolf, our homie, <laughs> who was talking, you know, he's like, uh, since as a kid was secretly planting trees, which I think is a hilarious story. But he talks about yeah, I love with, that. Yeah, <laughs> um, he talks about how with planting, um, I don't know if it was cannabis or uh, ayahuasca or something with, but he was, you know, at, he got to a point where you didn't even have to ingest or take in the plant medicine to have the effect by just interacting with it and growing it. He was getting those informational fields to him, which is wild. So there's a greater understanding of the waveform mechanics and stuff going on here with, um, with participating in mother nature in this way. And speaking of cannabis, another famous quote that I have to paraphrase. So sorry if I butcher it, but you'll get the gist of it. Thomas Jefferson, again, uh, once stated my favorite moments are overseeing my garden from the veranda while smoking my cannabis pipe. Wow. <laughs> so, um, Interesting. So uh, they're, they're hitting. There's, a, I guess. there's an interesting comment here. Someone said about Thomas Jefferson, they thought he was just more of an intellectual or more of somebody who just actually didn't get his hands dirty. Um, do you do you know anything about that? Or do you feel like he really did walk, uh, walk the talk? No, he really did do it. And we did get into some research to that end. And, okay. you know, he was out there, of course, he had field hands and all the, you know, the, the folks and um, uh, you, you know, assisting him on the farm, but he was out there working himself for sure. Okay. So want to list, uh, maybe we can start listing a couple categories about benefits of gardening, and then we can go more specifically from there as, as, you know, as far as what we want to get into. So benefits of gardening, one lowered risk in the occurrence of the following ailments, a reduction in diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure, and osteoporosis to name a few. In men 50 years and older who take up gardening consistently two to three times per week. So that was one study finding. And yes, FDA, we are stating a wild health claim that gardening helps your health. So bite me if you don't like it. Um, okay, number two, exercise. It assists in weight loss, increases flexibility and increases physical strength. And thereby, and thereby reducing the risk of failing, uh, falling injuries. Gardening can burn as many calories in 45 minutes as compared to 30 minutes of aerobics training. Weeding burns as many calories as walking or bicycling at a moderate pace 
and manual push mowing burns as many calories as playing tennis. Medicine. Plants are the source of real medicine that your body can wrap its head around. In the absence of synthetic substances that override natural processes with predictable side effects, which of course we know are actually effects, not side effects. Even today, the home gardener can grow herbs and spices proven to enhance longevity and quality of life. Next one, alleviation of depression through socialization. Depression in later life is a common occurrence in nursing home populations and the nearly 800,000 seniors widowed yearly. By and large, this depressive symptomatology is unrecognized and untreated. A simple and effective treatment for those feeling isolated and alone is to provide a garden setting that brings seniors together. Social relationships are forged through a shared endeavor while the natural nurturing inclination of elders finds outlet through tending a garden. And, you know, Michael, as you're aware, through some of the programs that my wife and myself have been involved with, where we teach gardening skills to the community, uh, you know, a, a good part of the, the students are elders, and it does exactly what we just read. You know, they have a social outlet, um, and you just, just seeing the light come on in people's eyes is, you know, just really made our efforts worth it. I'll tell you. That's okay. Fantastic. So let's see. Um, where are we here? And I'll say same with the kids too. We have the uh, kids gardens and stuff we do here with the kids and, um, they really get into it. So let's just go, uh, we'll, we'll uh, finish with the benefits of gardening, then we can just, uh, I can put this PowerPoint away and, and we can just talk. So uh, plants in the individual, noise and overwhelming sensory assault are the unfortunate norm in today's world. Environments predominated by plants provides a counteractive atmosphere to habituated stress, fear, anger, and general muscle tension. Just a four to six minute visual encounter with plant life, plant life has been documented through physiological indicators to have restorative and stress relieving effects. That's pretty neat. That's very cool. Physical rehabilitation, accidents or disease causing disabilities pose a most significant challenge for those in their golden years. The demands include an ability to adopt uh, adapt while taking the necessary steps toward rehabilitation. Gardening tasks are rich and varied and finding one possible and finding one possible within the restrictions of most conditions is a certainty. Any gardener will always welcome an extra set of hands and skill level is not an issue. So rehab, healthy gardens, healthy gardeners. Growing and eating organic fruits and vegetables has become one of America's fastest growing hobbies for retiring baby boomers. Even the organics found in natural food markets, let alone the commercial, commercially grown toxic fertilizer fed food found in the supermarket cannot compete with the nutrient rich produce possible through a garden to table. One of the most common afflictions facing seniors is malnutrition and what class of citizenry is best suited to teach our children the value of growing your own. Last one, get grounded and play in the dirt. Soil is an incredibly rich source of soil-based microorganisms 
commonly termed SBOs. Regular handling of the soil with bare hands exposes the body to SBOs with a noted boost to immune system function. Contact with the soil also provokes a discharging effect of harmful positive electrons, which you already mentioned, Michael, acquired when in the, in the proximity of Wi-Fi, smart meters, and the cell towers, to name a few. The earth acts as a ground and assists the body in the disposal of these electromagnetic frequencies, proving deleterious to human health. So I think that's good enough, and I'll put up the whole article later. Yeah, let's put those up on Patreon uh, if you guys want to see those. Um, we'll throw those up there and just to the public, you know. Uh, and then we'll have some more um, special um, articles on there for the co-op. And also, um, I think uh, we'll be doing more kind of five, 10-minute instructional <clears throat> videos for the co-op specified for soil science, ionization protocols, that kind of stuff. We've been getting a lot of requests for that. But back to this topic of health and horticulture, you know, we, we, we know that there is great health benefits of just going out into a forest, right? Uh, hugging a tree literally is impactful to your health positively. Uh, and so there's a resonance with nature. But I, once again, will stress the, the concept of going the next step and actually taking creative a creative enterprise of engaging with nature to grow your own food, to innovate with how you are maximizing your, your ability to grow food, grow medicine. I feel like there's some kind of exchange there. There's an informational exchange. There's a, you're engaging in the divinity of, of, of who we are as divine creators with mother nature. And that just seems to me be yes. Going for a walk, in the woods is great. I think it's amazing, but going to the next step and growing your own woods in your, on your property and engaging in the aspect of, of, of more abundance by growing stuff, by planting stuff, there's something there. There's something there that's above and beyond just walking in the woods. I don't know. And there's a lot more going on than meets the eye, obviously. Uh, when you delve into studies of, uh, you know, theosophy and the old, uh, you know, the old uh, underground schools that kept the truth alive for humanity for centuries to led to the anthroposophical movement and, you know, Rudolf Steiner and some of the people that we mentioned on this show. And uh, they talk about the living intelligence behind all of plant life. And what they talk about does not stretch my imagination because for whatever reason, my wife and myself both have had the same experiences since childhood and that we, um, you know, grew up in rural areas, but always had a great affinity uh, for just being alone, even as children and even through adolescence, you know, out in nature. And then also having visuals of, of things that I think people don't normally see that are, you know, more living in a synthetic environment. And in those uh, original teachings, they talked about trees. We'll start there. They say that every tree, and they had names for these things, but, you know, loosely termed, they called it a tree keeper, which is a consciousness, a living entity that was responsible for the maintenance and the purpose of that tree growing there within that guild, as we call them permaculture, but within that forest setting or orchard setting. And so those are living intelligences. 
just like in our human body, you know, that we believe is who we are and, uh, you know, which has really nothing to do with who we are. It's a projection. You know, of course, the real us is that intelligence that projected ourselves into the simulation in the first place, you know, for this purpose of the soul's journey and all of the other life forms, especially the life forms that are the mirror image of the human experience, which happens to be the botanical, you know, genre of existence. Um, you know, they have living intelligences and the tree keepers, you know, are something that I never forgot once I, um, you know, once I was exposed to that concept and, uh, you know, when we walk through the forest here and, and there's just, I don't know how many trillions of trees and plant life and everything. And, and to fathom that every single one of those life forms is a living, breathing, self-conscious sentient being that is waiting for us to not just recognize that, you know, who they are and what their purpose is and their whole service to humanity in the first place, but they're waiting to open into a very intricate and intimate dialogue with each one of us. And, and again, I can say, believe it or not, but that's true. That does happen. And um, that is all, I think, part of the, the, the most beneficial things that I've experienced, you know, living a good deal of my life in nature, uh, you know, surfing, farming, and all the things. It's always been about being in the elements. And, uh, you know, when humanity gets to that level of understanding and experience, uh, it's game over. That's when we enter into the final golden age that we're now entering into and why we're seeing all the, the shenanigans happen, uh, you know, in front of our face, because the, the, the few folks that wherever they came, came from, whether they're off planet or, you know, some kind of entities, or if they're just humans that are totally twisted, you know, uh, you know, it's a very small percentage of life on this planet. And so the antidote to all the problems that we see now being caused by these small groups of people, or whatever they are, uh, is being out in nature which goes back to the beginning of our talk. That's the foundation of a nation. And that also should be the foundation of our personal life and existence. Well, and the irony is these um, mega uh, elites, or I, we don't want to give them that kind of name because they're not elite at all, but these uh, technocrat guys, the top, most people don't, we're not talking about even the Rothschilds and and the Bill Gates. Those are like the, 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 kind of soldiers for these elite bloodlines they live in nature they have manors in in chateaus and they're out in the forests and they are surrounded by nature so they get it like i really feel like that matt damon movie i forgot what it's called that they're pushing for that where most of humanity is toiling in these like shanty cities where they have this like gaia um kind of garden because this is we live on the in the garden planet earth is the, meant to be eden right it's meant to be that like that's how if we just let everything go it would go back to that uh, all the cities would get overtaken very quickly and plants would th that plant technology would take over um so i i feel like th they get it and they're just tyrannical in their 
they despise humanity. They see humanity who were spiritually tapped in to be lesser than them as that lady Rothschild or who was, was the Rothschild who was asked in public, like, you know, this guy came up to her and was, was calling them out. And she's like, we're, you know, you're lucky we let you even live. That's how they look at us. Meanwhile, they are, you know, doing their own inversion of reality and nature while, but they also know they need it to be on this plane. And maybe in the end, you're right. Maybe they, they don't like nature either. And, but they're just using it right now to protect themselves against all the toxic poisons they're putting on the planet. So they shield themselves in their manners out in the countrysides and places like the black forest and where they hunt humans, <laughs> all sorts of craziness that we've heard about. <laughs> so. Just fun pastimes. Yeah. You know, a lot of these uh, folks too, I have, <laughs> I know, uh, Okay, I was going to mention somebody else who I'd like to get on here as a guest, somebody that I interacted with a long time ago that had direct experiences of witnessing what you just talked about. Oh, yeah. So anyway, um, you know, the, these uh, so-called elites also have a lot of expendable time. And with that time, they understand that, you know, humanity is here to really explore options and, and all the nooks and crannies of consciousness. And that's what they do. Uh, you know, some of the books and authors and prophets and, you know, all the, the great ones that we reference all the time, they read those people. Walter Russell, you know, Walter Russell was the darling of, uh, you know, royalty throughout Europe. And, mm -hmm. you know, all of these bloodlines, they just wanted to be with this guy because they understood that, you know, he had a, a perspective of truth. And that's what their lives are about is exploring their potential. But of course, <clears throat> those things that they learn, they invert in order to suppress our ability to access the same level of awareness because they don't want everybody out there <laughs> having a lot of uh, time on their hands. Uh, you know, that's why we have the 80 hour work week right now. And, and uh, you know, for the people that are still working, that is, um, you know, they want to reserve all of those secrets that really were never secrets in the first place for themselves, for control, obviously. But that's uh, going to boomerang in a real bad way on them. And it's actually happening right now. So um, yeah, great talk, uh, Michael. And I think it's a great one to start off the new year because uh, I personally would really like to hit, you know, the whole agriculture, uh, self-sufficiency, not just for the sake of survival, although I think that's going to come in handy this next year, uh, but, you know, just for that um, internal empowerment that comes from this. And it's not just about, you know, talking about trendy subjects like permaculture farming. And I know those a lot of buzzwords and, and people are really interested in that and, and those topics. And that's, that's a very positive thing, but we've actually been doing it for a good number of years. So I think, you know, just, uh, you know, what I'd like to do is share what we've learned and help people come to the awareness that it's more than just growing a little food and, and, uh, you know, saving some money or improving your health. Those are all amazing consequences, but it goes much, much deeper than that. Yeah. And back to agrarianism, the, the whole concept here, it really hits home on so many levels, um, the family farm, right? Um, and the rhythms of rural life. Here, I'm reading more from this, this article. Um, in their estimation, this is from the uh, more modern agrarianist philosophy, 
a society dominated by science, technology, and industry in a country inclined to favor the urban over the rural population would suffer an impoverishment of manners. What are we seeing now? Look at TikTok. God. Um, art. Look at culture right now. We don't have art. Movies are horrendous. I'm someone who's a cinephile. I know you and Deb and our whole whole crew, like, I mean, Bryden and Steph, like, make movies. Like, I love film. I can't watch modernity itself is so depressing music um the, the culture is and i love culture um uh you know so anyways manners art education <laughs> education is pathetic uh community where is the community and spirit no spirit materialism uh the family farm and the rhythms of rural life were essential to a good society such a life would encourage consonance with nature, discourage the ambitious pursuit of material goods, permit the leisurely enjoyment of family and community. We know that the nuclear family has been under attack uh, for a long time and allow the appreciation and experience of the spiritual and the aesthetic. Um, I think a lot of times agri uh, agrarian communities are 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 definitely looked down upon by the intellectual uh, kind of class as backwoods hillbillies that have no sense and sensibility, have no um, appreciation for the aesthetic. Meanwhile, the tr as we were mentioning earlier, the true Renaissance man seems to be agrarian in mindset. Um, one, you have more time in your hands. Once you're really like situated where you have your food supply dialed and you're not having to work nine to five job and you're, you kind of, um, you know, are more self-sufficient. You have time to read. You have time to engage in craftsmanship, uh, woodworking, um, you know, writing, uh, uh, the arts, painting, you know, these classical arts that we've seen to lose. And even in the modern realm, like I'm a web developer, I do, and I dabble in crypto. And uh, let's just face it, crypto's on fire right now because the dollar's <laughs> crashing. Um, but the we have time you have extra time to follow your passions and you're not um kind of enslaved in the culture the mainstream culture which i call babylon now you know which is really babylonian uh which is all spellcraft and black magic and wizardry uh in the mainstream modernity but you uh it's really quite uh, illuminating to think that actually the rural folk are the ones that are you know allowing for real progression of ideas because we understand that thought creates reality. And when you have the time to actually think, to separate, to get away and not just be on your phone inside, you know, the, these channeled cultural memes, things uh, you're on Netflix, you're constantly, you know, uh, getting home from work and then just staying distracted. Who's what's Monday night football tonight. And then I got to catch CNN for the news, which is just really entertainment and, and propaganda and then oh i gotta hit the hay gotta get up and hit it all again tomorrow and then you know um it's all of a sudden 40 years of your life have gone by and what have you done so um agrarianism is much more than even just um you know being a farmer yeah and an additional point that i didn't mention in that article is it raises your iq you know, I remember when I was in uh, <clears throat> graduate school, I was in a class and I was um, exposed to some studies that they developed different IQ quotients 
uh, compared to the classic IQ test. It's designed just to see how, you know, you can fit as a little, you know, brick in the wall kind of thing as, a, as this song goes, right? And, uh, but the true IQ quotient is based on your real tangible abilities on the ground to just deal with life, problem solve. And IQ, of course, the, the most important uh, part of IQ is not just your critical thinking abilities and your problem solving capabilities, but it has to do with your emotional IQ. And if you see what's going on by our esteemed <laughs> leaders in Washington now, um, I mean, they're, they're like, they aren't even adolescents, they're children that are acting out, they have no awareness of anything other than their own egocentric goals. And uh, just you know, when you're in nature, when you live on the land, as we already mentioned, the, the land itself, you know, takes all those toxic energies and, you know, transmutes them and uh, leaves you in, a, in that state of calm where you can just, you know, clearly differentiate between what's real and what's not. So uh, the, in the a study I was about to refer was... Um, uh, they found that different peoples that they studied throughout the entire planet at that time, the people that came out with the highest IQ scores based on these new set of quotients uh, were nomadic people. Mm. People that obviously lived, you know, on the earth or, you know, and, and also, um, you know, their life was just basically going with the flow and adapting to circumstances and understanding not just how to survive in, you know, whatever location they find themselves in, but actually to thrive. How many people today, you know, with their little degree in communications or whatever BS they, you know, you know, think they earned in college are going to be able to go out and survive, you know, a single day if the delis all closed down or something. It's, uh, you know, we're, and then we've talked about on our show too, about the, the, um, the eighth grade exit exam, you know, that you can find online that was given to eighth graders, uh, you know, during the 1800s. And nowadays you wouldn't find college students that could pass that thing. Yeah. In fact, college graduate students wouldn't be able to past that thing. So yeah, we've, we've really, you know, uh, you know, we talk about common core and it's about lowering the bar to the lowest common denominator, but common core started a long time ago. And, uh, you know, we were brought in uh, touch with some folks uh, by way of G Edward Griffin circles, uh, uh, this guy by the name of uh, Norman Dodd, who, uh, you know, um, really gave evidence to how all the, institutions of learning were infiltrated in order to create the beginnings of what we now call common core, which is, you know, the great dumbing down process. And I know you and I, Michael, share similar frustrations when, you know, we don't want to argue or, or be at odds with anybody, but just, you know, maybe want to have a discussion and, and enter uh, different information or, or, you know, verifiable facts into a discussion and people do not have the emotional or the intellectual ability to process the information uh, or even want to. So again, going back to the land, getting away from all the artificial constructs 
and, uh, you know, discharging your own negativity and retraining your nervous system to be in that original Schumann frequency, you know, that we call the earth's natural frequency. Uh, you know, that is all possible with one simple solution, which is just get outside. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people are, are, you know, still in the cities and, you know, one thing that, that are listening to this and like, how can we do this? And we could talk a little bit about that. I mean, I'm an example of somebody who did it. Um, but, you know, I guess the, the other question is, can we ever have a, um, a common ground between urbanity and rural life and agrarianism in a future realm? I could see where we have, because there are some amazing things with city life. And it seems like, you know, there are, you know, to go into the city center where you, you, the farmer comes in with his family to come see a, see a play or something. Or, you know, I mean, back in the day, the plays would come to the rural place, right? You'd have traveling circuses, traveling um, theaters uh, that would come and set up and um, you would have your culture that way. Um, but can there be a compromise between urbanity, between uh, city life and, um, and the farm uh, rural life? And maybe, I mean, if we had a truly holistic minded, um, you know, non-corrupted civilization where the technocrats are gone, let's say, and we've had this awakening, is it a place where it's like going to Emerald city or something from the wizard of Oz, where you go in and maybe your kids go for a little bit and you have an experience there. And then maybe you even have a place in the city you go stay at and you go back to uh, your rural place. I mean, is there a place for city um, or is that just sci-fi world that will always end up kind of self-destructing that will always turn into corporatism that will always turn into anti-human I don't know. I'm just, I, I mean, I, I kind of always question this stuff. You know, what do you think? Well, well, it'll only degrade if we keep allowing it. And, you know, everybody's sitting back wringing their hands right now saying, what the heck do we do with, you know, what's now obvious to most people. And um, it's like, well, we allowed it. And, you know, if you walk in the stores with a mask on, if you keep filing your little pieces of paper and paying your fees and penalties and purchasing your license to get permission, um, well, who's to blame? We're funding the beast. And, you know, going back to is it possible for a city or an urban, you know, environment to be healthy? Well, you know, what about the hanging gardens of Babylon? You know, uh, every city should be, uh, you know, living structures with community gardens. And, and not only do the plants, you know, bring, you know, possibilities of food production locally to urban environments, but they also are enriching the atmosphere, you know, with oxygen and, uh, and there's, there's absolutely no reason why every city, why Los Angeles can't be a garden paradise. And, you know, there's also a reason, uh, speaking of Los Angeles, why that famous uh, example a few years back where one particular community took it upon themselves to cultivate 
uh, a pretty large area within the inner city in Los Angeles mm -hmm. uh, because it was just laying there and, you know, there are no buildings and nothing was going on. And they had a flourishing garden, which, uh, you know, was feeding people. The community just all rose to the occasion. They were out there all lending a hand and everything. And of course, the city uh, mayor and uh, the administrator shut it down. Uh, we can't have that. So, you know, now you in, in its place, you've got homeless and syringes laying on the ground and, and you know, ba basically, uh, you know, predators taking advantage of other people. So uh, it all goes back to us. You know, we can be proactive and that we can, even in a city environment, you know, even if you have a little balcony on your townhouse or something, you can create, uh, you know, a little garden you know, in containers. Uh, you can go into your kitchen and have an alive sprout garden. Uh, you can do all these things right now, which is going to empower you in, in, in many ways. And then keep, stop giving them our obedience and energy. And as you know, Mike, you know, I've traveled in circles for many years where we have deliberately disobeyed. And, you know, some of us paid some, you know, a heavy price for that I did. And some people I know paid the ultimate price, but when do people stand up? Yeah. And if we think that right now they're going to stop just because they've got, you know, uh, the perfect trifecta as far as controlling all three branches of government, um, we still don't have to go along with it. They can do whatever the heck they want. We also know that it's not even our constitutional republic in the first place. It's a, it's a, it's a the corporate structure and, and really has nothing to do with it. So why do we keep giving them our power? That's an easy question to answer, by the way. And it's, it's called fear. We're afraid. And yep. um, I'd say if there's any one goal and, and anybody's, uh, you know, incarnation on this plane is to eradicate fear within yourself and do anything within your power to deal with it go into the heart of it don't shy away with it from it you know if something freaks me out i go okay just roll up your sleeves go right into it you know right in the heart of it and usually when you're in the heart of it it's just like being in the heart of a storm you realize wow it's actually pretty calm in here it's only when i was on the peripheral you know, afraid to dip my toes into the water that, uh, you know, it did all the bad things to my psyche and my body. But now that I'm just like, screw it, what have I got to lose? And I believe humanity is at that place right now, especially in this country right now, where what have we got to lose? Because yeah. it's all been taken away from us already. We are now back on the plantation. And, you know, if anybody wants to bring in, you know, the whole the whole thing of the history of this country, while well, the original people in this country, you know, fought a war. So they thought over equality and, uh, you know, they wanted this place to be different. And, uh, you know, they didn't want the plantations and have predators taking advantage of other people. This country is very unique in that respect and should be respected for it. So here we are now, the same people that the so-called progressives are backing and endorsing are the very ones that have put us all on the plantation, regardless of you know race, religion, or otherwise. And if we think 
that, well, we'll just be on a nice benevolent plantation. We'll get our nice little paychecks and, you know, just get to sit around and smoke weed all day long. Uh, you know, we don't have to work anymore. Well, that's going to backfire pretty quick and they're going to keep putting the screws on us. And that little subsistence check is going to get smaller and smaller. More is going to be expected of you. And uh, that is not a way to live. And if anybody doubts that that's where we're headed, then all we have to do is study a little bit of history. And then included in that history is uh, a, a recognition of the same bloodlines in those historical uh, challenging times and realize that they're the same bloodlines behind what's going on today. And they never quit. They only retreat and do things a little bit more cleverly. The British never retreated. They did not concede victory in the Revolutionary War. They just brought the city of London to our shores, not the city of London proper, but the financial center city of London. And they have conquered us with a monetary system and also severing us and our ties from the land. Yeah. And they uh, are masters of paperwork. <laughs> so they... Uh... They oh. use it. Yeah. They use it through paperwork. And of course we know the Zionists are the heavy players here along with the Jesuits. And those are all just players too, under the bloodlines. I mean, it goes, it goes deep. And rather than for me, it's like, rather than pointing fingers at that, I'm, I'd rather just like, like why I'm stoked to be focusing on agrarianism. It's like, I'd rather focus I still think that's all fictional still. It's all built on corporate fiction and um, getting real and getting based into uh, the soil and our community is very empowering. Um, otherwise, you can spin off into conspiracy zone forever. And um, it seems apparent, though, like with this whole thing that happened this week, right, with the uh, the storming of the Capitol and how crazy it looks and how it looks like it's all a, a psyop once again in a narrative. Well, in 2017, left-wing protesters stormed the Capitol building uh, and they took it over and bragged about it. And there wasn't a peep about it um, because it was a cause that was good for the corporate state. It was approved by really the true enemy of freedom and liberty, which is the American regime. This American regime is not our republic. It's not the, the true people, it is now the corporate superstructure that runs everything. It's big tech. It's both establishment parties. It's big pharma. It's the billion dollar corporations, the transnational elite, um, the FBI, the CA, all the three letter agencies. Uh, it's every mainstream outlet. It's every uh, single news source. It's every newspaper. Uh, it's the city, it's the federal police, which we know are all corporatized. It's all of the, um, all the cities are all the, the corporatized versions of them. All the political NGOs, uh, all the ac academia, the universities, that is the, <laughs> that is the American regime. That is the regime. That's the corporatist regime. <clears throat> that is not us. So going back to agrarianism and in, in rural, the rural people, we get that and we understand we can take our power back by coming together getting our own plots of land. I, you know, this, it, to me, the cities have fallen. Now, that's not to say, I mean, it would be a beautiful thing to have a revolution within the cities if enough brave people woke up there. And, and one thing with 2020 we saw was a lot of urbanites and it was annoying to us that they were coming out to escape 
the hell of the cities of masks and social distancing by going to all the national parks and coming out and coming to our beautiful river and, and trails and taking it over. And it's really easy to get frustrated with that and be like, go back to the cities. But on the flip side of that, maybe that, that injection of nature and that interaction with it will wake something up. Like it did for like, that was my journey. Like we got a trailer, a travel trailer and we were living in Redondo beach and we started going camping a lot and going to the national parks and, and getting outside. And it woke something in us. And it's like, I don't want to be in the city anymore. I want to be around this. So maybe we used to, we used to camp in our front yard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I mean, maybe, uh, there's something to this and maybe, you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be hunger games where it's just the, the silly, uh, uh, quote unquote elitist type of intellectual class that are completely nonsense wearing their frocks and ridiculous makeup and costumes, like in the, in the book series or in the movie, where then you have all the people in the suburban realms, you know, cordon off there and of course there it's really dark and technocratic and they can they control the food systems and there but that is an interesting analogy that's why i do like those movies it's like hits home in many ways but um i think for now the cities have fallen um it's time to if you are in the cities god bless you if you really want to stick to it hey maybe you could help us there maybe you could help spread the awareness and and take over the vi the the mental virus that's dominating the cities but it makes sense too. Like you could still get a pretty good deal. Like there's still, believe it or not, the value of like homes and cities are really high still because the debt system hasn't collapsed yet. Like you could sell your two bedroom, 150 square foot, 1500 square foot home for half a million in LA or more a million, depending where you are in LA and go get a, like a sizable chunk of acreage out in Idaho or Wisconsin or somewhere like that and uh, start a homestead. Or seeing that in in our circles, a lot of people doing that, and join the agrarian um, movement, and uh, that's really empowering. And so, um, one other thing. So, I I recently did a this week too. I did a wilderness survival workshop. It was an eight hour wilderness survival workshop, and it was actually up at a um, conscious kind of off grid community there i wouldn't even say it's a community it's just a, a a spot where some individuals live that um are completely off-grid and, and pretty much self-sufficient they've got um beautiful gardens goats uh, i mean they're living the agrarian lifestyle to a t and um i was brought up something i wasn't aware of when we were sitting around eating after the workshops, which were amazing. And I highly recommend too. having these skills. Like I learned how to do a fire drill, do fire bow, drill bow and, and make fire. I learned uh, how to build a basic shelter, a lot of stuff I already knew, but how to walk properly in the forest, do stuff like uh, deer ears and owl eyes and Fox feet and all this like cool, cool stuff. Um, but I learned about a series of books and um and this is out of Russia. And I was curious if you've heard of the Ringing Cedars series by Anastasia. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with this bear, but I, this was brought to my attention. And it is fun, really fascinating because it's like the Russian version of the agrarian movement. And it relates to kind of even like Ascended Masters teachings. It's kind of, 
I guess some people would say it's a little new agey, but the Ringing Cedars books um, are an international hit. And if anybody in the chat's familiar with these, I'm going to start reading them. And it's from um, a kind of celestial figure, you, you'll say, uh, Anastasia, that was kind of appeared supposedly to this author. And the whole movement is based on an agrarian lifestyle and going, oh, no way. Do you? No way. Are, are, are really? Really? Oh, <laughs> I just reached into my book portal. Oh my gosh. Dr. Edith Ubuntu Chan, if you're watching or listening, he did it again. I bring up some random book series I just learned and Dr. and Bear pulls it out of the portal. So you are familiar. <laughs> oh, these are awesome. These are a great series. So are you and... familiar then with the idea? So this was brought up. I don't, I haven't done any research in this. And I want to, this is mm -hmm. like, oh, I got to read these. That Putin um, met with the author back after the fall of the of the the communist Soviet Union, and basically was inspired to use this as a way to rebirth um, the the state there or the the people there, and basically came up with the idea that they would give them people they wanted to move out of the cities a plot of land if they farmed it, with the idea that this would bring back sovereignty and bring back strength to Russia. Um, are you, I, I know this? Putin is on board with that. I don't, I, I wasn't aware that he was, uh, you know, linking with, the uh, the Anastasia books. Uh, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's eight of these mm -hmm. and, uh, just a quick cliff notes. Uh, there's a, a business person that used to travel into remote Siberian villages, uh, in order to acquire certain things for his business, I guess, whatever he was selling. And uh, he, you know, over the years cultivated these relationships and finally came, you know, in touch with certain people that lived very remote that had all of these abilities because they basically they'd never been, you know, civilized. Uh, one of them was Anastasia. And, you know, mm. it, it's just a wealth of uh, information in the books where she, you know, talks about how she grows things. And in fact, I got uh, the first little tip that I've done ever since, you know, whereas when I plant my own food seeds, I put them in my mouth and, uh, you know, impregnate the seeds with my DNA. And then when you grow the food because of that, uh, you know, DNA within the membrane of the seed, it actually becomes food, uh, not food, just food, but medicine for your particular body, you know, with your DNA. And, uh, you know, I've done that ever since. And I, I learned that, you know, through these books, but they're just fun books sir. uh, in a way, sort of like the old Don Juan series, you know, back in, uh, in the sixties and, and, you know, those seventies, you know, when, when those came out only, I think these are a little bit more authentic and, um, you know, the costinated Don Juan thing was, you know, we don't know if that was true or not, but mm -hmm. either way, there's a lot of good truths in it. But the Anastasia books are, are amazing. And uh, you also get into the whole, um, you know, what the people in those locations understand is they're cedars. Uh, they call them singing cedars. Mm -hmm. And they literally, these forests, you go in and they emit a sound. And, you know, that's audible. Oh. So it's, there's some pretty remarkable things that they talk about. And in fact, there's even some people uh, you know, I, I can't uh, authenticate the, you know, the, this particular business, but I know there's some people out there that are selling little 
chunks of these singing cedars and claiming all these properties and everything. But the fact that these singing cedars are, you know, unique forests on the planet and do have these uh, intelligent interactive, uh, you know, sort of attributes with the locals there, including audible, uh, you know, ringing sounds, singing sounds. Uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend anybody reading those. They're great. Wow. Very good. I'm on it. I'm going to start reading it. I'm going to read it and read it to my kids. Um, oh, they love it. Yeah. They're easy. They're real easy reading, really just kind of like fun reads. Interesting. So I cannot believe I wasn't aware of this, but I'm so, this is what's why it's important to go out in the world and find like-minded souls. I've really found like a new tribe up at this place I was at. And actually they want to come, they really want to come see you and Deb and visit. Um, they're really, there's like, kids in their thirties that are up there, they're living off the land. One of them is very EMF sensitive, so she can't be around cities. Uh, so she's chosen to live there and they're, um, they're like, uh, the uh, AV farms, right? Just totally off grid. But, um, now that's, uh, the one doctor guy, right? That's yeah. My, it's, it's actually my chiropractor now who I've, yeah. who I really appreciate. He's really helped me out. Um, he's got, uh, a place and in telegram we've, we've, talked about it more. If people are interested to know more about this place, you can actually go and stay there. They've got like a tree house and a couple of places you can stay as an Airbnb type situation. But I was really impressed with their gardens and, and um, what they're doing there. And the people are very genuine. And as a funny aside, while we were building our shelter, um, somehow uh, the uh, CV 1984 came up and one of the gals there who's a caretaker is like just it just randomly says, well, we all know germ theory is a total hoax. And uh, I was like, oh, wow, I'm with my people here. So it's really just kind of wonderful to be randomly invited to this. I took took the chance and it universe put me in a perfect place, more like-minded souls. And they were like so thrilled to meet people that are weak because they literally feel like they've been pushed into the recesses of society because of their views on on germs and EMF and modernity and where the world's going. And they're literally practicing the agrarian mindset like us to a T. He's um, also, um, he's also very aware of the whole paper corporate game too. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know him personally, but I just hear through the grapevine. So he's, he's like one of those guys um, I understand is going down all the rabbit holes and figured out <clears throat> through his own experience, what's real or not. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, since he's almost in the neighborhood here, you know, I, I, I got to reach out to him, I guess. So, uh, so that's good. I'm glad you guys hooked up and, you know, back to the, the whole gardening thing. Um, you know, they're doing it. He's what a chiropractor who just took it upon himself to, you know, learn things, uh, you know, learn a different way of, uh, you know, treating people, uh, creating his own homestead his own destination. Now they've got a whole thing happening. We're doing the same thing. And that's how it starts. That what our, that's what our whole talk is about today is, uh, you know, individuals, whether you're in an urban setting or whether you live out in the boonies, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I welcome anybody from urban, you know, uh, places getting out and visiting us in the country, but I would strongly recommend uh, those people to fix up their own backyard because a lot of people really enjoy the urban lifestyle. And I have a lot of friends that are like that. So rather than saying, okay, I'm fleeing because they ruined my habitat or, you know, all the things I used to love, it's just like, no, 
you know, do what we're doing out here, only do it in your city setting. You know, you've, you've got like-minded friends, get together, start just doing little projects, get some clout, start communicating with other groups, um, start challenging the system, you know, and, you know, we, you, you kind of summarized it, the whole thing that they're um, controlling us with, they're pieces of paper. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and some of the podcasts we've had are just delving into the whole paper game and correcting your status and all those sorts of things. And I went down all those avenues too, you know, in years past. And I'm glad I did because I learned a lot from it. But knowing what I know now, <clears throat> my attitude is, you know, take your pieces of paper and shove them up your ass because <laughs> they're good for nothing else. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm over it. And I think that's the times we live in more and more people are just saying, I'm done. You know, I tried to do the right thing. I tried to do it through legal channels. I, you know, played your game. It doesn't work. We're over it. And we realize you do not have good intentions. <laughs> and you know, the, the next phase of your agenda is going to be even more unpleasant. So let's just call the day right now. So that's why no matter where we live, uh, who we are, you know, it's time to circle the wagons, do what we want to do, stop obeying and create your own little piece of heaven right where you live in your own backyard, because we can all do it. Beautiful. I think that's a great way to end the show today. And, um, you know, there's uh, you create your own reality. So wherever you are, and yeah, escapism isn't the way. I I totally get that. Take responsibility for where you are right now, and it and people will look to you as an example. And um, you know, I've seen that. There's a dude in Tempe, Arizona, I believe. Oh God, what's his name? I know him through permaculture circles where he kind of was all about regreening the desert and how it used to be and by creating swales just in the neighborhoods there by he broke the law actually at first by cutting the curbs because you weren't allowed to cut the curbs so that he would allow the rainwater that was just going down the road into the sewer sewer system or into the system and just going out instead of going back into the ground and then he would reroute that into little swales where they would plant indigenous plants there that um, thrive in that area. And he was able to turn his little suburban tract housing space that they moved into that was just desperate or just disparate and like depressing into this really cool like desert oasis. And they didn't, it was in like the middle of Tempe or something uh, in Arizona. And he is now inspired an entire community to do that. And so now you can just walk down and they've got literally like food forests in their neighborhood where they're, they're um, you know, there's tons of food in the desert. And he brought that awareness. It's just awareness and, and action and doing and being a good steward of the land and, and, and inspiring people through your, what you do, wherever you're at. So I love yeah, that. I have a, I had a friend uh, in New Mexico uh, who lived in a very arid place and he wanted to, you know, start farming and he created this uh, little device that collects the condensation, you know, in, uh, you know, throughout the night, just the moisture in the air. And he had it shaped like in a little funnel and every single plant in the ground had one of these on a stake right next to it. And it just literally watered it every night right out of the atmosphere. There's so many things that can be done with just thinking out of the box 
and just saying, this is what I want to do. That's, that's the first thing is, you know, okay, what do I want to accomplish? What are my intentions? And then the answers will come. The resources will come. That's all we've done. You know, all these years, uh, everything, you know, we've created a lot of things out there and, 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 and accomplished quite a bit. And, you know, from the get go, we never had any business in the first place, as far as the available resources and things at the time, but they all materialized because first off, we just said, these are our intentions. And that's exactly what we as a people in this country need to do right now, not accept any other, you know, discussions or theories or anything. It's just like, okay, this is what we're going to do. How do we do it? And that's what's been uh, attempted to be taken away from us is uh, us believing that we need other people to solve our problems for us. Bingo. Uh, by the way, that person that I was just mentioning is Brad Lancaster. And the book is uh, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond. And he's got a great little um, uh, documentary hour or half hour um, YouTube, if you just search him, where he shows everything he's done. So just a very cool. inspi inspiring character. Um, okay, guys, thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you found this uh, discussion to be illuminating and inspiring and uh, something you can share with your friends and family so that we can continue this discussion around the dinner table and, um, you know, start pushing these ideas out to those in the cities. And um, this, is a, this is empowering stuff. So we're going to have a lot more conversations like this this year. We will get more nitty gritty. I know one of the big, uh, the big uh, topics people want to know is soil science and the ionization and relating that to, to biodynamics there and how those kind of can work together and really kind of pushing the envelope for innovation uh, in uh, growing and uh, pushing yield and volume up. And, you know, I know that's a big thing that people are really into in the agrarian lifestyle is uh, improving their, their yields. And um, also, uh, you know, diving more into other techniques for growing in the winter for like one of my big projects down the line. I know we want to do this at AV Gardens is to do a thermo uh, regulated, um, th you know, thermo heated regulated underground greenhouse. Um, also bringing in the idea of the grand solar minimum and also manned manipulated weather and how do we grow in these, in these crazy times? Um, what are some tactics and techniques, whether they be high tunnels, greenhouses, how, how do we build those, uh, intentional building too, building within the, um, the grid within the, the, the node lines, or, you know, this relates to, um, uh, biogeometry and uh, radiesthesia and all these things and, 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 and integrating all that technology too into farming. So it's way beyond horticulture now, which is exciting. Yeah, so. it's soil. What you're talking about is soil alchemy. It's not about organic farming where you, you dump nitrogen from organic sources or whatever, or even beyond biodynamics. It's about understanding that all of life is a product of electrical vectors. And when you assess your soil and tend to your soil, that is what you're focused on, which is the same thing we're focused on when we're in our alchemical labs, creating spituric formulations and things. You know, it's about understanding how nature works, mimicking it, 
but in uh, you know, with the technologies that we have available now, speeding up the process greatly, which is getting us to that true endpoint of humanity's mission on this, uh, you know, within this matrix, we'll say, which is the ability to precipitate on the instant all of your needs directly from the ethers. And if you understand deeply and appreciate enough the real principles of waveform mechanics and, and the things that we discuss, the, the Ascended Master teachings, it's all about, no, you should be able to precipitate directly from the atmosphere all of your needs. Alchemy and what the ancient alchemists uh, you know, understood was to first take your cue from nature, then devise ways to speed up the process where the time lapse between you know, what you're creating and the, you know, the, the manifestation gets shorter, shorter, and shorter. And because you are an interactive element, your own consciousness within these processes, rather than relying on external means alone, then it brings you face to face with your own potential, which is going to be the only solution that is permanent for uh, you know, putting us back in the driver's seat of being co-creators on this plane, rather than thinking that we are in some way victimized by all these forces working against us, or even nature itself, <clears throat> which is going to have our way, you know, its way with us, and uh, you know, you know, just all the the garbage that we've been taught. So, um, yeah, <clears throat> we need to get out of the biochemistry model of, uh, of medicine and agriculture and go directly to the source. So uh, it's going to be a good year, a lot of fun topics to talk uh, about. And this was fun today. So thank you, Michael. Yes, thank you. As always, Bear, uh, always illuminating. I learn always learn on these alpha casts when we do these. So <laughs> Thanks so much. And I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. If you did, please give us a like, a follow, subscribe, share, all that good stuff, depending on wherever you're at. You can follow us on uh, DLive is our preferred streaming platform. So please go to dlive.tv forward slash alpha Vedic and uh, follow us there and join in the conversation. We do do this live so you can uh, join in on the chat. Uh, we're on YouTube and Facebook, all those other places too, but who knows how long we'll be on those. So uh, we're really focused on decentralized platforms and we'll be aiming towards having everything on alphavedic.com in the future, but that is the place to go right now to find us. And it's A-L-F-A-V-E-D-I-C.com for all the newbies listening. And you can join us on Telegram at t.me forward slash alphavedic and then on Discord at alphavedic.com forward slash Discord. Last, you can join our co-op at patreon.com forward slash alpha Vedic. That too will be, we will be getting off Patreon this year. I really want to make that happen. I know a lot of people can't stand that platform. They're pretty tyrannical when it comes to free thinkers. So um, we're just using that right now because we are bootstrapping this whole operation. And um, we will continue to grow and evolve uh, and uh, decentralize in every aspect that we can. Thank you guys. Uh, thanks for all your support. 2021 is going to be one heck of a year. So uh, thanks for joining us on the ride and we'll see you next week. We've got some really fun guests coming uh, for the month and these next few months. So uh, we're going to be trying to bring some, some interesting new people out of the woodwork too. So uh, you guys enjoy your weekend and we'll see you next week. Cheers. <laughs>